So we've been in this awesome series partnered with an artist named Betty Dickinson who's just released this devotional. We'd love to connect you to this devotional called Making Room in Advent. In just a moment, we'll feature one of her pieces of art to sort of contemplate together, to enter more deeply into this Christmas story. However, before we do, I just want to talk to you for a second about songs and about music, and I want to ask you this provocative question. How could a song change the world? How could a song change the world? There is this infamous story about a Russian composer named Igor Stravinsky. Anybody listen regularly to Igor? No? No? Oh, there's a couple. Okay, yep, of course. Someone's always trained. Someone's always trained. Igor Stravinsky was operating in the year 1913 when he wrote this orchestral arrangement of classical music called The Rite of Spring. The Rite of Spring. And interestingly, I mean, this music was purely classical. If you were to go listen to this music now, I bet many of you would be comfortable falling asleep, uh, zoning out, you know, doing whatever else I tend to do when I listen to classical music. However, in its day, the year 1913, before rock music, before the glamour of pop or the stadium-filling ability of superstar performers, in its day, Classical music was what people listened to. If you wanted new music, you would go to the theater, and there the best composers would present to you their songs with lots of staging and sometimes dancing. This, in particular, was a ballet. Now, in this year, 1913, Europe was on the edge of exploding. This was right before World War I was going to break out and sweep across the continent. And Igor Stravinsky's song, The Rite of Spring, just happened to be complex, dissonant, it was filled with lots of yearning, there was a steady beat to it, and as the story goes, in its opening night in Paris, a near riot broke out. As the music of the Rite of, String, uh, Rite of Spring began playing, the upper echelon elites were all looking down in disdain at this new sort of simplistic pop music that Stravinsky had made, whereas the commoners rose up, started uh, stomping their feet. Eventually, as the song was bursting forth, people were being pulled out of the theater and arrested, and that made the crowd so angry that it poured out into the streets and gathered this huge riot right there in the middle of Paris. I love this thought that classical music, the next time you go to look up Rite of Spring, it had the potential to change the world. That's how powerful music can be. For most of us, though, our music is dominated far more personally, and in fact, a sacred tradition, actually a time-honored, new, important day of the year just occurred, if any of you like me happen to have Spotify, and that is November 30th, when your Spotify Wrapped was officially released. Now, did any of you notice this year that Spotify has introduced a new, perhaps terrifying, algorithm meets AI contraption that they called your Spotify listening personality? Did any of you notice this? Spotify has analyzed the music you listen to, and it has determined, based off of the music you listen to, your personality when it comes to music. Now, that, on the one hand, is a little bit scary. Technology can be a little intimidating. Yet, on the other hand, I think there's something kind of profound about that. Uh, as Spotify revealed my personality through music, I sat and said, you know what? That does capture me. I feel like that. That is a part of who I am. Now, even more concerning and more insightfully, Spotify had in its wrapped 
a section that talked about what music I listened to at what points of my day. Did any of you notice this section? So to confess, uh, to be fair, I do share Spotify with my wife. Uh, I was told that in the morning, I listened to funny, silly, and fun music. Then during the day, I listened to bold, confident, and nervous music. Clearly, I'm working through things in the middle of the day. <laughs> and then at night, I happened to listen to easygoing, tender, and wistful music. Tender, tender music that I listen to at night. Now, my point in taking you through my Spotify wrapped is to reflect on how powerfully songs can shape us, how powerfully songs can even reveal us. What I do think is really profound about what Spotify is doing is it's reflecting back to us what music we were listening to that reflected the kind of year we were having, the kind of emotions we were feeling. And then if you really pay attention to the songs, I think Spotify is right. I think the songs I'm listening to are shaping, directing, and forming the kind of person I'm becoming. If that's true, then songs can actually powerfully shape who we are and possibly even change the world. Now, I set all of this up in case any of you are already guessing where I'm going with this, because this morning we're going to look at what is arguably the most powerful, the most famous, most influential song that has perhaps ever been penned. And it's going to come to us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and it's going to be called the Magnificat, or Mary's Song. So if you happen to have a Bible, we're going to spend all morning right here in Luke chapter 1. You can go ahead and open up with us. We will have this up on the screen in just a moment. I'm going to have the art come up first that Betty Dickinson has given us to capture this moment when out from Mary's lips burst a song that will, in fact, change the world. And as we look at this, I want to ask, how is it that this song changed the world, and how is it that this song is trying, is intending to change you and I? Now, I actually, in order to do this justice, because I'm feeling kind of experimental and Christmassy, I was going to ask all of us to stand up as we read this song. And because uh, it just didn't feel right for me to be the one to read this song, I actually asked my wife, Jenna, if she would come up, read the song over. So would you stand with me? We'll go ahead and read this song together. You don't have to read it. Jenna's going to read it for us. And go ahead and just receive and ponder this song as we listen together. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought dawning rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. 
This is the word of the Lord, and you can say, thanks be to God. Ready? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can go ahead and have a seat. Now, I know just upon that first reading, as beautifully as Jenna just did it, you may not totally be swept into having this become your new song of the year on your next Spotify wrapped. But let me go ahead and walk you through this song, really spend time with just this text to unpack for you why this song matters so much, why the church has cherished it so deeply, and why it has shaped our entire world so significantly. So when I talk to you about this song, I want to talk about three layers there are layers to this song that kind of help us get into the depth and the richness and the meaning. So the first layer here that I want you to observe is the layer of Mary herself, the one who is offering us this song. Now, Mary, as we talked about last week, likely would have been a teenager. I mean, I'm really humbled. Most commentators, scholars say anywhere from 12 to 18, with in all likelihood it being closer to 12, 13, 14. Uh, she's living in Nazareth, which is this very tiny backwater town. There were likely only several hundred people at most that we've seen evidence for living in Nazareth at this time. She has no special status. We're not told that her family was anyone of significance. And yet she, this young betrothed virgin girl, is told that she would conceive and give birth to God's son and that this son would become the king of Israel that would have an everlasting dominion over all the earth. Now, understandably, this news would be overwhelming. It would be uh, like, uh, how do you even begin to process it? Who do you talk to about this kind of information? And yet, Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth, who she was directed to connect with. And in connecting with Elizabeth, Mary is going to burst forth with this praise. This is at the top of the passage, if you can see it up here behind me. Mary's going to say, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, just to slow down with this for a moment, Mary says, my soul, right? This is the inner depths. This is what music evokes. This is what music pulls out from us. Yet that word glorifies, in the original language, it actually is to make great of, or as some translations have it, to magnify my soul magnifies the Lord. Why? Why is Mary's soul so captivated? Why does it want to lift high and make great who the Lord is? Well, because her spirit is rejoicing in God, my Savior. God, my Savior. Kind of brings up the question, what is God saving Mary from, right? Why is it that Mary would view God to be her Savior? Well, in Mary's day, it's helpful to remember that her people lived under the rule of outside authority. Rome, Rome was the oppressor that continued to reign over Israel in the way that Israel often had been reigned over. Israel was not a political entity for itself, and Mary would have felt daily, weekly, yearly, the burden of taxes that she and her family would have to pay, uh, the sense in which all of her land didn't really belong to her, belonged to someone else. I mean, there was a real political, social effect that knowing this king was coming would have potentially for Mary that she saw and thought salvation. Finally, my savior is coming. But the real heart of this Mary layer is what she says next. For he, God, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He's been mindful of his servant. If you were with us last week, Mary's great proclamation in response to this news was that she said, I am 
the Lord's servant. That word servant would have literally been handmaiden, somebody who waited on a dignitary or figure of importance. As a servant, you were quite often a slave in Roman culture. You didn't belong to yourself. You didn't do your own thing. And Mary embraces this category of herself. She says, I am a servant. I am the servant of the Lord. Yet, notice what this song says. God, the great creator of everything, has been mindful, has paid attention to his servant, one who has offered to serve him. I mean, to put this in contemporary terms, I can't help but think of keeping up with the Kardashians. Anyone immediately drawn to keeping up with the Kardashians? In our world, we have celebrities and figures of power, and yet the real question that would be interesting to observe, I've never had a chance to meet the Kardashians, just in case you were wondering, uh, but if I did, I'd want to notice not just what the Kardashians are doing, but who the the camera people are, right, that are walking around and keeping up with them. But if you were to really pay attention, it's not just the camera people who are walking around. It's the assistant to the cameraman, the camera woman, who's wandering around getting coffee, who probably has their phone up to their ears all the time, who is trying to solve problems. This is Mary's status. This is who Mary is. Mary is a servant. And yet it is as if the great, most powerful celebrity of our day has noticed the assistant, has paid attention to the handmaiden who is waiting on them. This is Mary saying, God has been mindful of me. Now, why? Why has God been mindful of Mary? Why does this matter? Mary's going to go on saying something even more bold. This is the next verse. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, this first layer is Mary. Mary, who is of low status. Mary, who is a servant. And yet Mary, who's declaring, who's making great, who's praising God because he has done something that is so significant that she now sees she will be called blessed for generation to generation, not just her kids, but her children's children. In fact, all generations are going to look at Mary and say, something incredible happened through you. This leads us from our first layer, which is Mary, to our second layer, which is Israel. The first layer is Mary, our second is Israel. Here's what I love about this song. Uh, my wife and I were just talking about it this week again. Mary is not just a nobody peasant girl living in the village of Nazareth. Mary, we begin to notice where she goes throughout the rest of this song, is actually a theologian. In fact, she's not just a theologian. She is a remixing theologian. She is actually going to take in this song all of Israel's history, all of Israel's promises, all of Israel's hopes, and she is going to remix it in a song of her own that somehow both involves her like she's part of everything that has happened in Israel and yet is going to look beyond her towards everyone, towards all of us here in this room. Uh, I can't help but think of Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I love and who took the biography of Ron Chernow on the one hand and then combined it with his passion for hip-hop runs from the 90s and 2000s and birthed out of it this brand new amazing thing, this piece of art. This is exactly what Mary is doing. She is a theologian who has reworked all of Israel's story. Now check out what Mary says in doing this. She's going to say, the mighty one 
has done great things for me. Holy is his name, that term mighty one, only is associated with God who is victorious, the God who is a warrior on Israel's behalf. Uh, We today do not really like comfortably in churches talking about God as a warrior. Uh, It feels kind of off. It doesn't really always make sense, especially for a church in the city. And yet, if you can just stretch your imaginations a bit and go back to Israel's day, it was very comforting for Israel to know that God had the potential to be a mighty one on their behalf. Israel was surrounded by constant threats. They were always foreign powers trying to invade. And God was the mighty one at key points in Israel's story to actually intervene and to protect, to defend, to enact new justice and new salvation. So Mary's pulling forth here the Exodus story. She's pulling forth what God did in solidifying David's kingdom. She's drawing on verbiage from the prophets. And she's going to say this key term that defines who God is as a mighty one. She notes his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. That key term, you'll notice it again at the end of this passage. Mercy. His mercy. All the way back in Israel's story, it wasn't just that God was this warrior constantly fighting and warring on their behalf. Instead, the true heart of God, the character of God, was that God is merciful. God is merciful. God creates and extends space to protect and to forgive what otherwise should not be protected or forgiven. God is the one who offers more relationship than Israel deserves. In fact, this word, mercy, merciful in the Greek, is the same word that would have been translated for hesed, which is this term in the Old Testament for God's loving kindness. Isn't that such a beautiful English term? God's loving kindness. This is a God who over and over and over again is going to pursue Israel, is going to protect Israel, is going to extend love kindly, mercifully, again. Now, so far, Mary's been sort of playing with some big terms from Israel's story. She's now going to go on another run that might just be her most powerful yet. I'll go ahead and read this again for you. She's going to string together a series of quick actions that God is doing. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now, this is a kind of moving, striking picture of justice recalibrated in a society. I mean, I can't even quite get my head around, uh, even living in an area like Lincoln Park, what justice recalibrated would mean for a neighborhood. It's a little bit humbling to consider, isn't it? Because it kind of forces us to ask, are we, are we part of all of the justice that would need to take place in order for justice to be recalibrated in a neighborhood? But uh, these verbs are, are moving, they're exhilarating. That he, the proud might actually be scattered. That those who are ruling up on their thrones might actually be brought low. But those who are down here in the ground, humbled, might actually be lifted up. That those who are hungry, who are yearning for food or for more from life, that they could be filled up, but that those who are overflowing with abundance could actually be sent away empty. Now, this is a very moving stretch of verbiage from Mary. Yet here's what I think is even more incredible. If you go all the way back 
to the Old Testament, most scholars have noted that this passage from Mary sounds a lot, a lot like one of the other famous songs from the Old Testament. And this actually was the song of Hannah. I'm going to put it up on the screen here for you. This is from 1 Samuel 2, 7 to 8. And here in Hannah's song, Hannah's story is that she is sort of neglected and unseen by society. She's even neglected and unseen by her husband. Hannah is unable to bear a child, and so she begins crying out to God every year when she comes to the temple. And finally, finally her prayers are heard, and God grants her a son, Samuel, who Hannah is going to dedicate to God and who God is going to use to lift up this new generation of salvation, including King David himself. So all of this is kind of there, Hannah's song, Hannah's story, but look at Hannah's words that she prays when this experience of salvation comes to Hannah. She says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. As you ponder this, this is why I bring up Hannah's song for you, and as I'm just even inviting us into this layer, this Israel layer to this song. I think, in fact, I'm pretty convinced that Mary, as young as she was, had probably already been studying Hannah's song. Do you see it in some of the language, some of the verbiage? Like, Mary has clearly been contemplating and pondering all of Israel's story. She has been reflecting theologically on who God is and what God does. And as Mary has been pondering all of this, she's going to borrow Hannah's song and she's going to say, this song not only was true then, but it, it's actually true now in what God is doing through me. If we go back to this passage, you'll notice that it's almost a little confusing that when Mary goes to sing, she actually describes all of these verbs not happening in the present but having acted in the past. I'm going to read this again to you. Mary says, He has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry, but has sent the rich away empty. The, the disconcertion of it is that surely those things don't feel like they're taking place right now. Like, what's the significance that they had happened before in the past? This leads us to our final layer, the third layer of this song, which is that really this song is not about Mary, and really this song isn't even totally about Israel. Actually, at the heart of it, this song is truly about God, who God is and what God has done that even now Mary sees taking place in her midst. The end of this song is going to say, He, God, has helped his servant Israel. That word helped is literally a coming alongside, a coming to the aid of. He has remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Really, what Mary wants us to get is that this song is about who God is and what God is does. This song teaches us three significant points that I just want to end with to offer you direction for your Advent season, for your Christmas tide, 
whatever it looks like right now. And that really, as a song, if we could truly internalize, if we could truly embody this, these are the three points I think Mary is trying to give us to reshape our lives around this God whom she praises. First point is simply this. God will remember his servants. God remembers his servants. I think most of us, if we're being honest, would get a little tripped up on that word servant. I don't know about you, but my dream has never been to be the personal assistant to the cameraman who follows Kim Kardashian around. That was never the trajectory of where I was trying to go. Serving is hard. Serving often involves insignificance. Serving, if you've ever been an assistant or if you've been in the service industry or you've ever served someone, like you don't often get noticed or appreciated for the ways that you're serving. But catch how significant then this promise is that Mary is drawing our attention to, internalized in her own story. God remembers his servants. God actually pays attention to his servants in a way that the world does not. God is the God who will attend to you even as you offer your life to serve God. Um, Just because I was talking about Spotify, I was reflecting on one of my most exhilarating Spotify moments that happened a year or two ago. Uh, There's this artist, an Irish singer-songwriter by the name of Dermot Kennedy. Anybody here know Dermot Kennedy? It's great. Yeah, me and a couple people are totally synced up. Maybe you two have bold, confident, nervous day songs that you listen to to get you through the day. Um, I like Dermot Kennedy, was listening to his stuff, was pretty proud because I discovered him somewhat early and he'd released a new album that was getting big and I was listening to it a lot thinking, man, this is great, I really like this music. And all of a sudden one day Spotify informed me as I opened my Spotify to go hit that Dermot Kennedy album again. Congratulations, you are the top 1% of Dermot Kennedy listeners in the world. Now, that's not something I'm currently proud of right now. I kind of wonder what was going on. If any of you go to listen to Dermot Kennedy, something was going on in my life, right? I need to maybe reflect on why I was so deep in Dermot Kennedy. But the funny thing about that moment was that for just a second, and I think this is exactly what Spotify is trying to do, for just a second, it felt like Dermot Kennedy knew who I was. Any of you ever had this happen to you on Spotify? Like, maybe he knows who his top 1% are. Like, maybe we should be friends, right? Like, clearly something's working here. I mean, clearly I'm committed to this in a way that uh, Dermot Kennedy might be interested in. And as I reflect on this moment, I, I share it with you. Just because I think in some ways this is what the experience of being a fan, of being somebody who who celebrates the celebrities in our society, or maybe even sometimes longs to be close to those celebrities, feels like in our world. And yet this is the power of what Mary's saying. With God, God actually does know who you are. God actually does know how you serve. God actually sees when you give time, when you give money, when you extend kindness, when you forgive, when you pray, when you weep. This is all part of how God knows and sees and remembers his servants and draws near to you as you serve him. I wonder, I wonder how this song might change the way we think about our service to God if we realize, like Mary, that God actually remembers his servants. Here's the second point. Mary would want you to walk away with. God's promises will come true. God's promises will come true. 
it's kind of an interesting thing that God has made promises. I think we can often forget today in our contemporary church Christian world that God has promises to us, many promises of which have not yet been fully fulfilled. When I think about promises, I, I don't know about you, but I personally feel uneasy. I always kind of feel like, ooh, God's making promises. Those are going to be hard to keep. You know, like in our world, uh, promises to me are often associated with politicians, and I have that kind of experience. Oh, there we go, another promise. There's another politician making a promise to me. Or promises can even be associated with our friends. How many times have you, like I, experienced that particular friend who always says, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll be there at 7.30. Definitely be there at 7.30. And then 8 o'clock comes and goes, and they show up at 8.10. Not throwing any shame, uh, none of you here. I'm not thinking of any of you here. Uh, but I, just yesterday with my wife, was walking. We were walking to a park, and our daughter, Hazel, our three-year-old, always loves riding this bike that she has, and yet she gets tired as she's riding the bike to a park. And so then if she gets tired, inevitably I end up carrying the bike. And my daughter said to me, I really want to ride the bike. I said, no, you can't. She said, I promise I'm going to make it to the park. And I looked at her and was like, you promise? And she looked at me and was like, I promise. And then 10 minutes later, I was carrying the bike yet again, just shaking my head at a daughter who has broken her promises to me. I, I think the truth is, though, even as I go through those different layers of promises that have been broken, I think for many of us, when it comes to God, we begin to experience any kind of disruption to our faith. We experience seasons of lows. We go through some suffering. And we start to say, you know, God, God's broken his promises. Like, God doesn't care. If God actually remembered his servants, then why would I be going through such a terribly low season? But the truth is, it isn't actually God who has promised you will not suffer. It isn't actually God who's promised that you will not struggle, have highs and lows, that there won't be incredibly long wilderness periods in your faith. But what God has promised is that God will come, again, this great declaration we're about to say as we come before this communion table. And we're also told that God has promised to ultimately scatter the proud, to bring low rulers, to lift up humble, to fill those who are hungry, to send away those who are full. I mean, these are the promises of God that will come true. They have come true, and they will come true. And so for us today, I, I just know how tempting it is to bail on God as soon as life gets tough. But Mary is here to remind us and to center us. God's promises will come true. Can you hold on this Christmas to God's promises? Final reflection for you, really the center of Mary's song, is that God will lift the lowly up. God is going to lift the lowly up. I think this actually is one of the most challenging things, being in urban church, living in Lincoln Park, because all around us, our culture is not about the lowly. In fact, all you have to do is spend some time online, uh, scroll through Instagram, go on Twitter, and you find everyone trying to do their best <laughs> to lift themselves up. And I get it. It feels better to be lifted up. I would love to be lifted up. It would feel so great if this Christmas uh, my life could have a nice perfect sheen, if my photos were glorious, if the lights were twinkling down upon me. And yet the problem is to follow God, God actually first says it's the lowly 
the lowly who are going to be met by Jesus at Christmas. It is the Marys, the nobodies, the servants, the assistants. And God's promise is not actually that the rich would get richer or that the full would get more filled up. God says, I'm going to meet you if you are low, if you are down on the ground. When you empty yourself this Christmas, that is when God is able to fill you up. So for some of you, I just think this season is probably full of some lowliness, for being honest. Like, this isn't something you talk about or necessarily something you present in any of your social media feeds. But I know just in this room, like, there's a lot of us struggling with a lot of different things. There are jobs that are challenging. There's relationships that are hard. There's seasons of life. Uh, there's finances. There's love, filled or unfulfilled. And when it comes to these struggles, I just want to encourage you this morning with Mary's song. It's so radical because God says at Christmas, it is the lowly that God will meet and will lift up in Jesus Christ. I just want to close by reading this song over you one more time. I'm actually going to invite Jen and my wife to come back up. And as you listen once more to these words, receive the gift that is Mary's song. The gift of a song that could actually, if you believed God remembered you as his servant, if you believed God's promises will come true, and if you actually trusted God would meet you in your lowliness and lift you up, could change our city and change this whole world. Jen, will you read this to us one more time? Empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to move now into a time of communion. For those of you who have been with us, we've been using real bread, uh, and we're going to go ahead and just read this passage over you from 1 Corinthians, as well as offer you the chance to join in with your voices to participate with us. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to say, I received from the Lord Jesus what I have also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So would you join me in proclaiming this? It's on the screen together. Here we go. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We'll invite you forward in just a moment. You can go ahead and cup your hands as you come forward to receive. I've been saying the last few weeks, this moment you can kind of awkwardly make eye contact with the person offering you the bread. It's a nice prayerful moment. Just take a second and receive the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus as he's offered to you. You can either leave the cups here or take them back with you. And I finally just want to encourage any of you who are in need of prayer. We've got prayer in this back corner down here on the floor. We would love to pray for you. Let's go ahead now and receive this gift of communion together. <laughs>